I trust this has been a good week for you all. It's really good to see you all. I thank you so much for being here tonight. We had a good afternoon class, and I'm uh, looking forward to tonight's. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 21, and we're continuing with these burdens. They're called, they're God declaring judgment on various nations. We'll begin with a destruction or a judgment against Babylon. I'm going to read just a couple of verses in just a moment and pray. But I just have to wonder from God's perspective where we are in a burden upon our country. I just have to wonder as we read through this and just see what it was that caused God to place judgments on these various nations. Could we be far from them? Just hard to imagine. Isaiah 21, 1 and 2, the burden of the desert of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Let's pray and ask God to meet with us tonight. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love, and I thank you for the book of Isaiah. And Lord, we are so culturally removed from many of its truths, we need help. Lord, we need help culturally, we need help spiritually, understanding this book and how we can apply it to our own lives. And so, Spirit of God, would you speak to our hearts tonight? Lead us as we go through this study, and we'll thank you for what you're going to do, for we love you in Jesus' name, amen. I'm assuming you're like me. I don't like being spanked. I didn't like it as a child. I don't like it as an adult. I don't like it when God has to take me outside and say, okay, I'm gonna let you have it. And God shakes me up or brings things in my life to wake me up and, and to shake me out of a spiritual lethargy. I don't like it. And I'm sure these people, these various uh, nations that God spanked, if you will, didn't like it either. The sad thing, as we see nation after nation, is that even with a judging hand of God upon them, they didn't repent. They didn't turn to God and say, oh God, we blew it. You're right, God, we're wrong. Instead, they just got harder of heart and more accusational and bitter toward God. I say that to say, I don't know always when it is that God is spanking me or just allowing opportunities in my life to grow. I don't always know. But I want my response to always be the right response and that when, some, when, when difficulties come, I want to turn to God and say, God, if this is judgment, then please show me area of my life that you're working and if it's just an area of my faith that you want to grow, help me to grow. I want to grow closer to you. And so as we read through this, um, look for application personal. Roman numeral one, a judgment of destruction upon Babylon. Verse one says, the burden of the desert of the sea. Well, this is not identified until about verse number nine, but verse nine identifies this region as that of Babylon. Babylon was built in a desert, but not far from the riv rivers of Euphrates and the Tigris. Its location was prone to storms. And if you can think of the Middle East, 
whatever you understand the Middle East, when you think of a violent storm, what kind of a storm would come typically in the Middle East? A what kind of storm? Sandstorm. Right, sandstorm. You just see this massive wall of, of sand, dust that's coming your way. And this, this particular area is prone to that. Um, notably, sandstorms blowing up from the south Arabian desert. In this verse, it talks about whirlwinds in the south passing through. These whirlwinds symbolize the destruction that would blow upon them from the powerful Medes and Persians. So God said it's going to be like a sandstorm that hits you. It's going to be overwhelming and disastrous as it hits you. And they say, well, we understand the picture. We understand the analogy. And when the Medes and the Persians came, that's exactly what it was like. Letter A, Persia's invasions were violent. Verse 2, a grievous vision is declared unto me. A treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Now, at first glance, we say, who is this Elam? Elam was a province of Persia. According to Genesis 10.22, it was the original place of their settling east of the Euphrates. The land there was not named Persia at the time. It was known as Elam until the captivity. Persia means horsemen. Cyrus was known for training his people in horsemanship. So prior to the captivity, the land went by the title of Elam before it became known as Persia. Cyrus took Babylon in similar fashion to which Babylon had taken its conquests through treachery. Cyrus was ruthless in his invasions, known for his treachery, and then merciless spoiling his victors. Isaiah 33:1, Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. What goes around comes around, is what he just said there. Letter B, Isaiah internalized the pain of Babylon's predicted judgment. Isaiah is seeing this vision. He's seeing before him, as God plays this reel of vision before him, he's seeing the destruction that's going to come upon Babylon. Verse number 3, Isaiah says, Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me, as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. As, God, as Isaiah saw this vision, he was physically overtaken. It hurt him to see what he was seeing. So much so, he likened it to a woman going through labor pains. The sight of Babylon's utter destruction caused him to be afraid. His insides were vexed. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 For when, sh when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Letter C. Isaiah's compounding fear at the vision. This was interesting. Verse 4. My heart panted. Fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. As is the case with numbers of verses, especially in this chapter, 
there's, there's, there's several potential interpretations here. This could be Isaiah, once again continuing to be distraught over the vision of destruction he's watching. And that fear could be compounded because as he was writing it, Babylon was not Judah's enemy. In fact, Babylon was close to an ally. And Judah looked to Babylon as a possible help against the invading Assyria. And so when God showed, um, showed Isaiah that Babylon was going to be destroyed, he got afraid because they were looking to Babylon for help against the Assyrian threat. This could be a picture, secondly, of wicked King Belshazzar, to whom God showed a handwriting his condemnation on the wall. His licentious night of pleasure was suddenly turned to fear by the dreadful event. Of course, that's found in Daniel 5, verse 4 and following. Letter D, getting ready for battle. Verse 5, he says, prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, go, set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. God warned Judah to keep a steady lookout, or to watch in the watchtower, and prepare for a coming war. He said, go anoint the shield. So this picture, if you will, swords and shields and spears, all in an armory that are there stored for battle. And he says, I want you to go to the armory, I want you to start taking the, the various shields and the swords and preparing them for battle. He said, anoint them. So oil them, get them ready for battle. God warned uh, Judah to keep a steady lookout. Again, this may be, secondly, a look at Belshazzar's feast. Knowing of the threats of the Medes and Persians, he may have ordered extra guards in the guard towers. And he may have commanded his princes to prepare for battle all to provide for him and his guests a good time at the party. Letter E. The vision revealed a mounted attack, verse number 7, and he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. So in the vision, Isaiah saw what he described as a chariot with a couple of horsemen, etc. Literally translated, this phrase reads, a team of horses, Likely what Isaiah saw was a cavalry of mounted horsemen, riding horses, asses, and camels, all led by their commander, Cyrus, as he was approaching to destroy them. Whether directed primarily as a warning to Judah or Babylon is unclear. Isaiah 21, verse 9, And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. We'll come back to that in a moment. Letter F. Isaiah saw Cyrus leading his army. Verse 8. And he cried, A lion! My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. As the leader of the mounted army neared in this vision, it became clear it was Cyrus, the Persian. Here he was called a lion, known for its fierceness, courage, and strength. 
Isaiah stood faithfully as God's watchman and declared to the people the burdens that God laid on his heart. Here, that of Babylon. Letter G. Babylon will fall to its invaders. Verse 9. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. Now that's repeated. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. This may represent a chariot decrying the fate of fallen Babylon, describing the devastation, including the complete ruin of its false gods, which is interesting. These were likely pillaged for their gold and silver value. How does God feel about false gods? He hates them. He hates them in his own people, Israel and Judah, and he hates them in Babylon. God hates false gods. The image here also could refer to a chariot led by Cyrus, mounting an attack with a couple of horsemen, or the combined armies of Media and Persia led by King Cyrus. In any case, the vision clearly showed Babylon's fall. The phrase, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is also repeated in Revelation when referring to the end times world power. In this vision, it refers to the judgment that would soon fall on the powerful city. Revelation 14, verse number 8. Letter H. Babylon was about to be threshed. About to be threshed. Verse 10. Oh, my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. God here seems to break from his vision form and speak directly to Isaiah as he spoke of Babylon as his threshing. He's going to thresh them. Babylon, described as God's threshing and the corn of my floor, was about to face God's hand of judgment. God wanted to make sure that his people understood that the vision that Isaiah was delivering to them was directly from him. Isaiah Understand, this is from me, Jehovah God. I am delivering this message, and my people need to know this. Jeremiah 51, 33, by the way, Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially are other prophets that God uses to, to give uh, better insight. And sometimes you'll be reading Isaiah, says, I don't have a clue what's being talked about here, but there's a few key words that you'll see repeated perhaps in Jeremiah or in Ezekiel, a few other prophets that give light to this. For instance, Jeremiah 53, or 51, 33. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her, yet a little while and the time of her harvest shall come. Roman numeral 2, God's message of doom against Edom. Against Edom. Verse 11, the burden of Duma. He calleth to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? Well, God's next burden here, his first was Babylon tonight. The second is against a place called Duma. This was one of Ishmael's tribes in Arabia. It is used here to refer to the land of Edom. Seir is the notable mountain in Edom, or Idumea, south of the Dead Sea. Letter A, Edom bemoans its condition. In this vision of Isaiah, 
A cry comes from the mountain of Seir in Arabia to the watchman, to Isaiah. So somebody on the mountain there in Arabia calls out to Isaiah, likely and saying, what of the night? He was likely inquiring as to how much longer will this night they're in, these trials they're in, continue. Well, the trials were, the country was embroiled in war. It was besieged by both Egypt and Assyria at the time, and they were soon to be destroyed by Babylon. She says, what of the night? How much longer are we going to be in the night? He said. Verse B, Edom's inquiry is returned with an appeal to repent. Verse 12, the watchman, Isaiah, said, The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye. Return, come. So here's the request or the inquiry from Arabia, the mountain, Seir. What of the night? How long will we be in the night? Isaiah said, The morning cometh. Good news. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, and also the night. So you're going to get better right before you get worse again. Then in mysterious manner, Isaiah tells Edom that their prosperity or the morning would come for them again, though it would be short-lived, for it would be followed by another night or their trials. One nation's attacks would fade in time for another to begin. They're told that they may inquire, or come for counsel again, but as they do, they must come or be converted to God and then receive His healing. Roman numeral 3, God's declaration of destruction against Arabia. Verse 13, the burden upon Arabia. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim. Now, what's funny about this verse to me is forests in Arabia. Well, when you think of the Middle East, think of Arabia, you think of a desert. There are no forests in Arabia, so what in the world? God's next message of His judgment is against Arabia. Arabia's forest consists of thick, rugged underwood. It's like thick, dense bushes, just just. Uh, very low-growing bushes that are all gnarled together. It's called a forest, making the region of that forest practically inaccessible. God addressed the traveling companies of Dedanim. They were nomad traders doing business with coastal Tyre. They provided ivory and ebony and precious clothes for chariots. Ezekiel 27.15 says, the men of Dedan were thy merchants. Many isles were the merchandise of thine hand. They brought thee for a present horns of ivory and ebony. Ezekiel 27, 20. Dedan was thy merchant in precious clothes for, the, for chariots. Letter A. Arabians helping Arabians. Verse 14. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. The people of the kindred tribe of Tema, which was an oasis close by where the Dedanites were hiding, provided water for them. This act of kindness enabled them to stay in their place of refuge and not have to leave. Thus, Arabians helping Arabians. Letter B, 
the Dedanites had fled for safety from the war. Verse 15, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. If you have a bow and arrow, you're holding the bow, it's not bent. But if the arrow is notched and you draw it, now you're picturing war. Letter C, wealthy Kedar was also doomed. Verse 16, For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Within a year, according to the years of a hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail. Kedar was also in Arabia. It was known as the most prosperous and wealthy region in that area. Within that year, the land was known for great glory. Its glory would also fall with all the rest. Its prosperity would not protect it from Assyria's assault. Jeremiah 49, 28. Concerning Kedar and concerning the kingdoms of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall smite, thus saith the Lord, Arise ye, go up to Kedar, and spoil the men of the east. Letter D. Kedar's mighty men would not stand against God's judgment. All of the wealth and prosperity of Kedar could not resist God's judgment. Verse 17, And the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. This land called Kedar was also home to a most formidable army of archers in Arabia. The mighty men of Kedar will be diminished before the judgment of Almighty God. As God stirred the powerful nations of Assyria and Babylon against them, none of these nations stood a chance. Roman numeral 4, God's determination against Jerusalem. Letter A, Jerusalem's burden. Now we're getting a little closer to home. Go from, from uh, Babylon to Edom, to Arabia, now to God's people, to Jerusalem. Verse 1, the burden of the valley of vision, what aileth thee now, that thou art wholly gone up to the rooftops? It's peculiar. Called here the valley of vision, the text identifies this as Jerusalem in verses 9 and 10. Jerusalem stretched over two primary hills or mountains, one Zion, and the next is Arca. The two hills were separated by a broad valley. Apparently, the vision shows the inhabitants of Jerusalem on their rooftops. You've got to understand, rooftops are not like our rooftops. Their rooftops were flat. They had flat rooftops, and there were railing or balustrades around the outside, which was written in the law. The, the law of Moses said you have to have a balustrade around this flat roof. And so he says they went up to their houses probably in an attempt to hide from the invading armies or crying out to their gods to save them. In Isaiah 15, 3, In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. Number one, typically festive Jerusalem fell silent. God's very descriptive here in verse number 2. Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, thy slain men 
are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. You say, what? The great city, Jerusalem, normally bustling with business and activity, a city demonstrating amusements and laughter when prospering was now eerily silent. Fear of the approaching armies have caused the streets to be emptied and people fleeing for places to hide. Though the army of Sennacherib marched to the very gates of Jerusalem, they never actually fought against it. Assyria's army was decimated in one night by the Lord, as prophesied in Isaiah 37, 33. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it, which was fulfilled in 2 Kings 19.35. It came to pass that night, the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Number two, fear paralyzed the leaders. Verse 3, all thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from afar. <laughs> Again, a couple of possible interpretations here. The apparent meaning is that the leaders, which probably include the military officials, you got your, you got your mayor, you got your aldermen, you got your street sweepers, and then you have all the military leaders. They were bound by the archers, or likely overtaken by fear of the enemy archers and un unable to move. This may refer to Judah's king Zedekiah, Zedekiah being the king at that time, and his men who fled during the night to try and escape Babylon's advances. We see this in Jeremiah 39, beginning in verse 4. It came to pass that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saw them, and all the men of war, then they fled and went forth out of the city by night, by the way of the king's garden, by the gate betwixt the two walls, and he went out the way of the plain. So the king and his small entourage in the middle of the night left everybody in the city, all the people for whom they were responsible to protect, to protect and they snuck out, hoping to get away. They didn't care what happened to everybody else. But, verse 5, the Chaldeans' army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. When they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Rablah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. So apparently, um, their plot was foiled. Those of surrounding areas fled to Jerusalem for safety behind its walls. Number three, Isaiah became overcome with grief. Once again, as Isaiah sees these visions, he's overcome, and now he's seeing the vision against his own people, Jerusalem. Verse 4, Therefore said I, Look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me, because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. 
Isaiah again becomes overcome with grief as he's forced to see what would soon happen to his beloved city. He pled with those around that they would turn away and not see him weep. He was in a state in which he could not be comforted. The truth of Jerusalem's fate left him inconsolable. Number four, Jerusalem's day of trouble. Verse five, for it's a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. The judgment of God by means of the Assyrian and Babylonian armies would be a trouble and a treading down. The armies would march to the countryside, destroying everything in their paths. And I asked the afternoon class, and some of them knew, but when I took history, I studied, um, I studied uh, Sherman's march to the south. Do you remember Sherman's march to the south? As he did so, he destroyed a wide path everything in its way. He burned it, he tore it down, he destroyed the fields, he destroyed everything in the way to, to annihilate them, to overcome and demoralize them. That's what I see of this army of, the Syri of Assyria and then Babylon. It would be a time of perplexity or great confusion brought on by the Lord God. Again, the land is called the Valley of Vision, this title could refer to Jerusalem as the center of so many of God's visions to his prophets through the centuries. Number five, Assyria's army included other subjected nations. Verse six, and Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Elam was basically another name for what became Persia. They they, at the time of Isaiah's vision, were under Assyrian rule and fought with the Assyrian army. Persia, therefore, bare the quiver with Assyria's chariots, which I found interesting. Uh, uh, Persia, at the time, was under the Assyrians. So here's Persia. The Assyrians dominated them, and we'll see in just a moment, as well as Media. So Persia and Media were dominated by the Assyrians didn't last long, because before long, Media Persian becomes the dominant power over Assyria. Here, KIR referred generically to Media, who were also in subjection to Assyria at the time. Their role was to prepare the armies for battle, uncasing their shields, which kept them protected from the elements. Again, they went to the armory, and all of the shields and spears were all protected there. When it came time for battle, they would go in, they would take them out of their sheaths or out of their covers and prepare them for the actual battle. And that was the responsibility of Kir. Number six, Assyria prepared to fight at Jerusalem's gate. Number seven, and it shall come to pass that thy choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate, at the gate. At the gate of Jerusalem, Assyria marched to the very gate of Jerusalem. Assyria sent a forward contingent of chariots that enabled them to entrench for battle at Jerusalem's gate. Second Kings 18.17, And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool 
which is in the highway of the fuller's field. However, number seven, Jerusalem was pitifully defended. Remember what the military leadership did? They snuck out. Verse eight, and he discovered, or he, or Assyria, discovered the covering of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. As Assyria approached Jerusalem, it became obvious that Jerusalem was not well fortified. To their shame, the military leaders had abdicated their positions. Jerusalem was a poorly defended city. This reference to a house of the forest was a large building made of cedar that Solomon had built used as a, using as a military armory. He used it to store the shields that he had fabricated out of gold. It became the only source of security to which the city, Jerusalem, found comfort. 1 Kings 10.17, And he, Solomon, made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pounds of gold went to one shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Number eight. The weaknesses of Jerusalem became obvious to the enemy. Verse nine. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many, and ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. Well, the walls of Jerusalem were in a sad state of disrepair. Because they had enjoyed a long season of peace, they had neglected the wall of protection. It now became evident that it could not provide the security necessary, and the enemy knew it. When Hezekiah realized a serious threat, he had the waters of springs around the city diverted so they would not be a source for the enemy. 2 Chronicles 32, 2 and 3. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains, which were without the city, and they did help him. Number nine, Hezekiah hastened to fortify the walls. Verse 10, And ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. So desperate did the people of Jerusalem become, they tore down many of their stone houses to use the stones to repel the wall. Can you imagine? They had a lottery to find out. They numbered the houses. Perhaps every third house was torn down. They used the stones to rebuild the wall. Second Chronicles 32.5, And he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and repaired Milo in the city of David and made darts and shield in abundance. Number 10, Hezekiah brought water into the city. This was incredible, brilliant. So here, Hezekiah realizes that Assyria is against them. Assyria is going to eventually surround the city. And when the enemy surrounds the city, they're cutting off all food supplies and potentially all water. Well, you can last for quite a while with no food, but you can't last without water. Verse 11. Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. So during this time, Hezekiah dug a tunnel through the bedrock from inside the city walls to the Gihon Springs outside the wall, creating what would become the Pool of Siloam. 
that tunnel formed a conduit whereby the spring could be diverted, bringing the fresh water which was outside the wall, underneath the wall, into the city, which was, again, simply brilliant. Instead of looking to God for their strength, however, and thanking Him for the water, of which King David had built the pool many years before, they trusted in their own military might. Except for godly Hezekiah, Judah had become spiritually bankrupt. Letter B. God called a time of repentance. Verse 12. In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. God called his people to a time of true repentance. He beckoned that they weep and mourn over their sin and humble themselves before him. Of course, James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Number one, God's people, after being told to mourn over their sin, God's people chose instead to party. Verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. So instead of listening to God and sorrowing and mourning over their sin, the people of Judah erupted in a party. They decided that since they were going to die anyway, they might as well live it up. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul wrote, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth me? If the dead rise not, or if there was no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul told the Corinthians that if there was no resurrection, they might as well be like the Epicureans and eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. God's people were acting like there was no God. Number two, God declared their sin was too grievous to forgive. Verse 14, And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die, saith the Lord God of hosts. This act of insolence and contempt to God was so grievous, God told Isaiah his people would not be forgiven. Many instead would fall before the Assyrians when its army invaded. Roman number five, Jerusalem's leadership problem. <laughs> Letter A, Shebna, S-H-E-B-N-A. Shebna was filled with pride. Verse 15 and 16. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto the treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here, and whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out of a sepulcher on high, and that graveth a habitation for himself in a rock? Well, this Shebna was apparently a, 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 called the treasurer, was a high-ranking official in Jerusalem. He was over the house of David. Apparently, he decided that he was important enough to have a tomb prepared for him in the royal cemetery, along with all the other kings. <laughs> Shebna had elevated himself to a position not given him either by God or the people. Number one, Shebna's fate quickly changed. Verse 17, Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. Jewish tradition says that when the Assyrians invaded, 
Shebna went outside the walls of Jerusalem and was captured by them. When Sennacherib's army was destroyed, he and his few remaining men took Shebna with them as a captive. Number two, Shebna's glory evaporated. Verse 18, he will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. Taken away from Judah to Assyria, Shebna entered a large country in which he would die. Once again, according to Jewish tradition, the Assyrians believed that Shebna had mocked them. They therefore fastened his feet together by drilling holes in his heels and fastening him to the tails of horses and dragging him through thorns and briars. His glory ended him tied to horses' tails. Number three, God would thoroughly chasten Shebna for his pride. Verse 19, I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. God would judge the arrogance and treason of one of Hezekiah's chief rulers and use him as a lesson for all. Letter B, we switch from this proud, arrogant treasurer, leader in Jerusalem named Shebna, to letter B, Shebna's replacement. Number one, Eliakim was promoted to replace Shebna. Verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. God found a godly man named Eliakim, but he wanted to serve him in the place of wicked Shebna. He ultimately became the prime minister of Judah directly under Hezekiah. Number two, Eliakim would rule in great power. Verse 21, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So Eliakim was about to be robed in the royal garments once worn by Shebna. Godly Eliakim would rule in great power under King Hezekiah. Number three, Eliakim was a type of Christ. Verse 22, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut, and none shall open. Eliakim is used here as a type of the Lord Jesus. In early Eastern governments, authorities would often have a hook sewn inside their upper garment where a key could be hung. It served to both provide access to the treasury and to show as a symbol of authority. The royal line of David was fulfilled in its divine descendant, Jesus Christ. There will come a day in which God will give to Jesus the keys of all governmental authority. He in that day will open and none shall shut and shall shut and none shall open. Letter A, Christ's kingdom would never end. Verse 23, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Referring to the Messiah or Christ, God will give him a kingdom that will never end described as a nail in a sure place. He will glorify his heavenly father throughout eternity. The actual role that Eliakim may or may not play in a future fulfillment is not mentioned, but it's believed that he was in the house of David. Letter B, 
Eliakim's rule would be blessed. Verse 24, And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. Eliakim, like the one he was a type, would serve securely under Hezekiah. His administration would be blessed. Contrarywise, let her see, Shebna's fate was determined by the Lord. Verse 25, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in a sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. So Shebna had thought that his reign would be immortalized. It was instead torn down. He was destroyed. God had determined his fate, and it did happen. We covered two chapters tonight, longer chapters, and that's why, that's why we had a lot of blanks. Praise the Lord. Let me just conclude by saying, God's in control. God's in control. God determined the judgment against these heathen nations and against his own heathen nation, Jerusalem, Judah. And God, I believe, has determined the fate of our nation. Now, what I believe is happening is God is giving Christians an opportunity, a last breath, a last dying breath, if you will, to try to reach as many as possible, which is why we still pray for revival, that hearts might be stirred before it's too late. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and your blessing and for this time. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you, Spirit of God, for leading us and guiding us tonight. Would you please help us in light of the shortness of the time to be salty Christians, willing to share the gospel with others, living lives that reflect you and your nature. We thank you for all that, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless you.